Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tree Podcast. So excited today to bring you the conversation that I had with Anand Pandit, who is a brain surgeon in the UK, and Mike Dane, who was on a previous episode, a software engineer from the States. It started off asking Anand about what it's like inside a, an operating room, what it's like to be a brain surgeon, the profession that a lot of people use as their example when they talk about somebody being intelligent. And it was, we learned a lot from him, myself and Mike, and then the conversation shifted naturally more towards consciousness and basically a lot to do with the brain, but more on the side of the mind, not so much with the, the physical brain. And I thought it was very interesting. I'm very grateful to be able to have had this conversation and to share it with everybody. So hope you enjoy and hope we can continue having conversations like this and keep exploring and keep learning. So without further ado, here is Anand Pandit and Mike Dane. Enjoy. We're here with Anand Pundit and Mike Danes come back to join us. Yeah. Hey, Mike. Hey. How are you doing? I'm great. Uh, Excited. Anand, how are you doing? Yeah, great. Are you doing good or no? (laughs) I'm surviving. (laughs) Good. There was a big night last night, so uh, hopefully that won't cloud Anand's mind because we really want to hear from a real life brain surgeon. It's pretty cool. That's true. I am indeed a brain surgeon. Yeah. Um, so basically, I want to hear about everything. Okay. Like, like Any, everything. everything in particular? Uh, what's it like being in the operating room? What's it like seeing a brain for the first time? What's it like skill-wise with your hands and the gloves and the blood and anything? Okay. Wherever you want. Uh, okay. Well, I'll, perhaps just I'll tell like, how I got into brain surgery. You know? Yeah. That's so yeah, keep it high. <clears throat> so okay, so I really like brain stuff when I was in medical school. Um, I think for most brain surgeons, the the career picks them. I think it's a pretty self-selecting group. Um, there's not many people who sort of land up into brain surgery by accident. Um, so I really like brain sciences when I was when I was in medical school. I did a bit of research. I really wanted to be a neurologist at the time. And then I did an elective in South Africa where you get a chance to do some work in you know, a developing country and you've just graduated and it's just like a new experience of being like a fresh doctor. And I, got, I wanted to do neurology there. I ended up getting my last choice, which was neurosurgery, which I was really disappointed about to begin with. But then it happened to be literally one of the best experiences I've ever had. So it was like you know, trauma, gunshots to the brain, brains exploding. You name it, like any possible thing you can imagine that could happen to someone's brain, I pretty much saw it there. I think I saw a bicycle spoke go through someone's brain. I also saw, I also saw a bullet. The guys, uh, there was a guy who came into clinic and his skull was so thick that he, he deflected a bullet <laughs> off his skull. So he just had this like little bullet like sticking out with the skin oh covered. God. Amazing. So yeah, so it was a great experience and then I changed my career from there into brain surgery. Uh, and just to double check, I did a bit of neurology when I when I got back home, which is like all the medical side, and I found it so ultra boring that I, like I knew I'd made the right choice. So yeah, so that was about five six years ago, and had a couple of years internship, and I've been doing brain surgery like through and through for the last few years. Uh, what's the operating theatre like? It's like most operating theatres, I think. Um, what are they like? <laughs> yeah, <we're laughs> what are operating theatres like in general? Is so it like in the movies and TV shows? No, no, not at all. In fact, you know when they like put up like X-rays on yeah. the screen, that that Doesn't you know happen. that's like from fifty years ago. Like, <laughs> we've had computers for a long time. <laughs> yeah, but it just looks good. Yeah, it looks good. And obviously, yeah. you know, a surgeon can completely, you know, without any infection properties at all, like just go up and lift an X-ray in the middle of an operation. That's obviously completely safe as well. <laughs> I'm joking. That's definitely not neurosurgery. So okay, so neurosurgery can divide into like two sort of two streams. One is trauma, and the other is elective. 
Um, but for us, we get a lot of trauma, which makes us a bit different to other surgeons. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's got a head injury or a back injury or a spinal fracture or a neck injury or like some nerve problem, then they all come to us. And the elective side is a completely different like kettle of fish. That's like you know elective operating of brain tumors, sticking electrodes in people's heads, you know curing epilepsy, uh, clipping aneurysms, like you name it. It's a huge, huge field. So what's an operating theater like? Um, it's kind of a culture to like a theater, kind of similar to I don't know, probably like a real theater, like a drama theater. So you feel like it's a there's like a different language going on, and even for even if you're a medic, it's quite intimidating to go in because it's kind of like a system of how they're working. Obviously, everything is super clean, and you know you've got to wash you know, like ten times and you know, wear all the proper equipment. Um, and then each theatre is kind of different depending on surgeon to surgeon. So kind of a, like a classic theatre will be, you know, there'll be an anaesthetist there, there'll be a surgeon, surgeons whoever they're training at the time. So someone like me, I'm still in training. Uh, there'll be a There'll be a scrub nurse who's like giving the equipment. Um, there will be probably a student hanging about. There'll be an anaesthetic trainee. And that's kind of like your minimum operating set. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you'll have like observers and stuff as well. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so if you kind of visualize in your head, you imagine that there's like a table in the middle of the room. Uh, there'll be some sort of computer screen on the wall which is showing various images. On one side, there'll be like a sort of cabinet where all the anaesthetist has all of his drugs mm-hmm. and it's connected to like an oxygen machine to enable the you know, patient to be anaesthetized. There'll probably be like an x-ray machine in the room as well when you need to do x-rays. Um, uh, yeah, and there'll be another table just for all the equipment, which is like given to you during the, during the theater. And that's probably like the common part. And then each surgeon's got their own flavor. Like some surgeons love music. Mm-hmm. So I've been with surgeons who like love classical music and they literally time like the crescendo of the sonata for the moment that they take out a tumor, like operas, <laughs> like, like opera singers at the same time. Like the, it's bizarre. Wow, damn, um, that's crazy. Yeah, it's like- Can, you, like, can you time it that well though? Uh, I sometimes I think that they like slow down on purpose yeah, yeah, just, yeah, to, like, just like, to reach that like climax. It is a real song. theater then. They're, yeah. 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 Then there's there's quite a few kind of young surgeons who like listen to electronic music, rock music. What? Yeah. Electronic music? Damn. Yeah. In fact, some of the in fact probably one of my favorite parts of operating is the music. Yeah. That just I really is there like that. playlists that go around like certain yeah that yeah. I, I think on my Spotify I've got like four four playlists just for like theater oh, no music way. theater moods as well. Yeah. Like if I feel like you know you're gonna operate on a tumor, you sort of need. It's like kind of an endurance game. Yeah. If you're like clipping an aneurysm, it's like, you know. So that's not in the movies either. Not really. Like they're never, it's just like everyone's tense and there's like sweat on the brow. There's no music. <laughs> well, sometimes the, sometimes the surgeons will be like, okay, stop the music. We need to kind of focus. And there are some surgeons who don't have music at all. Yeah. But for like the majority. I, I didn't know there was any. That's. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. We, we've got a Bluetooth system in our, in our theater. It's like <laughs> yeah. literally the best things in sliced bread. It's so good. <laughs> like, I can't, like, even if I'm having a bad day, all I need to go into the theater and play some good music. And yeah. Like, I don't know. Just operate on some exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh my Just god! It's so it's so like liberating. Uh, yeah. So that's the kind of general atmosphere of theatre. Some are a little bit different depending on if they've kind of got like some special focus. Uh, so some will have like microscopes in there if you need to take a chunk of brain out and then look right there and then saying hey, is there a tumor or not. Um, yeah. So that's what the operating theatre is like. Uh, brain surgery is probably divided into like two as I saying, but in kind of what you mentioned in terms of the pressure, some it's just like, you know, a slow process. You just, it's kind of like crawling up a mountain slowly or just doing bit by bit. And there's some which is like time pressure. So for example, there's things called aneurysms, which are like where you've got like blood vessels and part of the blood vessel is weak inside the brain. And just imagine like a little balloon, which is about to pop at any time. So you've got like a time, like a time bomb in your head. And the idea is, is that you need to find where this time bomb is uh, without damaging any other brain and then placing a clip on it. Kind of similar to like cutting the wire. Like cutting the wire. Yeah. Um, so that is a different, that's a completely different <coughs> yeah. atmosphere as you might imagine. That would be tense. Yeah, yeah that's that very tense. So tense. That's very tense. And most of those surgeons who specialize in that are extremely anal retentive. Yeah. Like they're a very different personality, which you probably need for that kind of yeah. work. Is yeah, there, are they superstitious at all? How much is like? Um, do people have like rituals? And yeah, they do yeah. actually. You're right. Like that's like sports rituals. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that a lot. Is like you you want someone to be operating on you in that situation who 
doesn't get ruffled, right? Who, yeah. who yeah. operates well under pressure, who never gets too high or too low. Like they need their personality probably needs to be pretty level mm-hmm. in order to be able to do that. Yeah. If you're someone who could fly off the handle or you know, you get up and down and how you yeah. be able to handle that, like you'd get I imagine it'd be you wouldn't be successful. Yeah. Like, that's no I think, I think you're right. I mean they are they, they see things very black and white. And I think that personality is just like spreads to everything else. And it's, it's similar, like, you know, spinal surgeons, like, who obviously work on mainly on, the, like, bony work of the spine, they're like the jocks of, like, <laughs> they're all yeah. relatively young, they're all guys, they all like sports, mm-hmm. they all ride motorbikes, they all have a lot of banter, and it's that kind of theatre, because it's, it's much, much less pressure, I suppose. Yeah. But, uh, but the operations are really long, they're like eight hours and stuff. Yeah. And then you have guys who do stuff which is, like, uh, functional, which means... Let's say you have a patient who's got Parkinson's. What you can do is place a really, really thin wire, kind of like a pacemaker, but into mm-hmm. the brain, which will activate part of the brain. This is the, this is kind of the future of neurosurgery. If you have like brain machine mm-hmm. interfaces, so you've got like um, kind of technology which kind of sits within the brain and allows part of it to stimulate it. So Parkinson's has been going on for like the last thirty years, but now for like depression, schizophrenia, epilepsy. Um, so those guys are extremely OCD. Because they have to target something which is like sub-millimeter. Like if yeah. it's in the wrong place, like the guy's screwed. Yeah. So again, it's a very different type of surgery. So that's, you were telling me about that before, right? That's like where, is that the whole brain, uh, you're saying it's like electroshock of the whole brain though, right? It's not, not this one, it's different than this. It's where it's not targeted. Yeah, and that's where it's not targeted. What is, what is that one? Where it's not targeted and you can shock the whole brain and it helps with like, Depression, saying, yeah, depression yeah depression yeah those kind of things where so that's like electroconvulsive therapy so that's ECT mm-hmm. um, it's in the realm of psychiatrists and that's been around for like the last I don't know 80-90 years but it hasn't been used right like until recently again no well, it goes it goes in and out of fashion it, yeah really. I, but, mainly on public but it works it, it works it's like it's one of the few magic so, bullets so why is it not used more why is it not like the biggest thing right now um, as Especially I said, with these things becoming more prevalent, or yeah. we know about them more. Well, the, I mean, these two things are quite different. So one is extremely targeted, and the other one is basically you try and give someone like a seizure. Which yeah, so the, the brain. Right. The, the targeted one, yeah, where you have to be super OCD and get it within the millimeter. Yeah, that's that's more relatively new, right? That's like yeah, the last twenty yeah. years. Yeah, and that one works really well. Yeah, also that's probably like for Parkinson's, for example, like movement disorders is that is as good as medication, okay. if not mm-hmm. better. But the other one's been around forever, and it works, but it's not. Oh, it's yeah. popular? Why is it not Well, a few reasons. I think, so firstly, it's always considered like an end-of-the-line treatment. You are actually harming someone in the process, which mm-hmm. is sort of defeats the point of being a medic. Yeah. You should try and heal them. I mean, all medication is supposed to have side effects, but this is like genuinely putting someone in harm's way. It's shocking someone's brain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's other ways you can do it. You don't have to shock them. Like, for example, if I gave you insulin, your sugar would crash mm-hmm. to, a certain, to such a level that your brain would start having a seizure. So that'll be another way you can yeah. basically try and recreate the same thing. So that's another oh, okay. very similar method. Um, so yeah, so part of it is like, you know, you are harming someone. The second is, is that, well, you do try treatment, medical treatment, like, you know, drug treatment first. And when it's, when you know that a patient is resistant to all of those, then it's like, okay, we'll give this a shot. And the third thing is just like culturally, like people have really, really, like the public have a really bad perception. If you take any newspaper article and just Google electroconvulsive therapy you'll have like headlines like you know patient electrocuted yeah. uh, you know to, to make them into a vegetable but like they'll, they'll focus on something like that and the, the perception will be so poor mm. and you've got to remember like a lot of commissioning about services about money worldwide is based oh, on perception yeah yeah it's based on a combined team of both doctors and lay people yeah, uh, when right. they're commissioning services because ultimately lay people represent the patient yeah. um, I know all too much about that from nuclear like everyone hates the word nuclear or right. yeah. you know, so much that they don't want to even give thorium a chance, but it's like, yeah, exactly. It's just perception. If, yeah. If you exactly. really look at what it does, it's, it's so much better, but like, yeah, yeah. Perception's really powerful. It is. I mean, that's probably one area of perception. I think the, when I was studying uh, medical school, I think one area which was really shocking was like how we treat psychopaths. Mm-hmm. So when people say psychopaths, they think of like, you know, Psycho, the yeah, film, crazy and actually, people, right? And they, exactly, well, exactly. That's the first thing which comes yeah. to mind. But actually, that's only one percent of psychopaths. Yeah. And the chance of like one a normal person being a murderer is probably like I don't know one in a thousand. So right. there's like ten times more. Yeah. But we still treat psychopaths in such a way that 
we don't feel safe. Yeah. And there's this like strong cultural like push to keep them in psychiatric hospitals. Yeah. Um, but that will change. Like that culturally, that will change, and people will go through a phase, and then you know, psychopaths will be you know allowed in society, like the ones who are diagnosed at least. Yeah. Um, and then something will happen, and one psychopath will kill someone, and then the whole thing will be reset again. Yeah. And everyone will go back to. I think even more generally, like just mental disabilities and diseases are like almost seen as, like I don't know they're not as accepted as like a physical ailment. Like if you break your leg, it's like, oh, what happened to your leg? Okay, it's yeah. broken. Whereas if you're like, oh, like, I don't know, I'm like seeing things or I'm like super depressed or something. It's almost, there's almost like a stigma attached to the mental yeah, yeah. disorder uh, as absolutely. opposed to like, oh, you just broke your leg, whatever, it's fine. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's, I feel like it's, it's almost just like even more general to that. Just like, oh, there's something wrong with you mentally. Like, are you psychotic? Like, yeah, 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 exactly. There's, you know, there's very little sympathy. You're right, it's a stigma, um, you know, People don't understand it, and it's it's ridiculous because like depression is like you know one in I don't know, seven or eight people. Yeah. So like, every seven people you see, one of them is gonna have yeah you know moderate depression, which is huge. It's huge numbers. That's more than you know the highest forms of cancer. Like, yeah. We don't definitely don't give as much empathy towards people. Yeah. In that state, or we think okay, well it's like, you know self induced. Mm. Yeah. You know things that they could have changed, but yeah, I mean I think. Um, that culture will slowly change. Mm-hmm. I think the next, every generation of doctors, particularly the ones who you see first, like family family doctors, mm-hmm. they're trained in such a way that they try and see the patient in a holistic way. Like, yeah. mind and body is not separate. Um, they're starting to? or It's been going on for a while. Um, but we know, I mean, there's good evidence, a lot of evidence in training, which suggests that if you treat a patient holistically, unsurprisingly, you have better outcomes. Yeah. So if you've got a physical injury, mm-hmm. it's very likely you'll have um, something mental associated with that you know it's very mm-hmm. difficult let's say you know if you broke a leg yeah they'll have like combined effects on the rest of your life and it's very likely you may suffer from depression yeah you, you break you tear your acl you can't play ball anymore you you that's like your life let's say yeah exactly yeah. that's yeah. so much more than just a leg injury it's yeah yeah your whole life's changing yeah so i mean kind of seeing those angles um we have got better in some ways at it yeah in some ways uh, there's still probably a lot to do um, you know, for me, for one, if I see a patient in clinic, um, it's, 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 it takes a lot of effort to, let's say they've got kind of, you know, some issue, uh, like, for example, they've got back pain, that's a classic, this is like a third of patients who yeah. present to their first doctor will complain of back pain, that's how popular it is as a problem. But when I see back pain, the only thing I'm trying to work out is whether this patient needs an operation or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, they probably need someone to sympathetically sit down with them because how much of that back pain is psychological is, you know, it's enormous. At least I'll probably say about 50% of patients with back pain is how they're interpreting the pain. Oh, really? It's not actually like physically based? There probably is a stimulus of the pain, but yeah. what they're feeling, the suffering, is all mentally induced. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting how there's not a clear separation between the physical and the, like I think we like to think of like this is a physical problem, this is a mental problem, but it's like yeah, it's, it's a holistic problem with the yeah. body, and like you can't separate those two things. From yeah, each other. well, it's all mental because all your physical pain is felt by your brain. Yeah, it's so all interpreted all through your brain, right? In the same way, yeah. yeah, and you got to remember, like humans are the only, I think, the one of extremely few species who are able to uh, interpret what suffering is. Yeah. So every other animal experiences pain. It's just pain. Right. It's like a stimulus. Like this is not right. what they want to do, yeah. and pleasure being the opposite. Yeah. But for a human, it was extremely complicated because you turn pain into suffering, yeah. you turn pleasure into suffering. Everything gets convoluted, yeah. um, and that whole kind of calculation about turning pain into suffering is something which is entirely, you know, within our hands and entirely psychological. Yeah, yeah. I wonder because like some people would say, oh, it's it's not fair, right? Like this happened to me. It's not fair. It's part of like suffering. But you're seeing that there's those. Those experiments are done with the monkeys in the cages where they mm. give them both like cucumber and they're both fine and they take it and they eat it. But then they give one monkey a grape and the other one a cucumber and it loses its mind because it's unfair. <laughs> yeah. The other one, and like, I wonder how much animals feel certain aspects that we, we see as only human. But maybe yeah. like, like these monkeys, and they're monkeys, they weren't apes, they were like capuchin monkeys. Yeah. And they. Like unfairness was a legit thing. Like it yeah. was all good. It was all good yeah. until, until the other one got the sweet grape and he got the yeah. you know bitter cucumber and it was like, it was so interesting to see that, and it yeah. made me just wonder what else, 
you know, how, how much do they experience sadness or joy? Mm-hmm. Like, how much do you see animals, like, smiling sometimes? Like, are they actually smiling, or they just look like that? Like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. We, don't we'll know. never know. We can't put ourselves yeah. in their shoes. Mm. I don't know if we'll ever know, unless we talk with them. I think we can get, a, like, a decent idea of what their intelligence level is. Mm-hmm. But you're right, in terms of emotional processing, I think that's very difficult. So what kind of stuff is being done? Because I feel like, you know, a patient comes in with, you know, oh, their arm hurts, like, you can do an x-ray, you can check to see if the bone's broken, but, like, if it's all mentally based, like, how do you start diagnosing that? Like, is, are you guys trained in that at all? Is that something that's, like, being addressed? It seems like it's so much more abstract than, like... Yeah, I mean, I think, um, it depends on country to country, to terms, like, how the training is. Yeah. Usually, you try and, you know, you try and be a generalist first before mm-hmm. specializing. So, you know, we had an internship where part of that you do see a lot of psychiatric presentations yeah um and then i think from my point of view the thing i need to work out is whether is this a neurosurgical problem or not and right. why it's not a neurosurgical problem yeah so at least i can refer on to mm-hmm. a person who can specialize in that yeah i mean back coming back to back pain that's a prime example when there are sometimes there are no structural problems whatsoever mm-hmm. their spine is as perfect as anyone can be but they're obviously in tremendous amounts of pain yeah. so what's going on we don't know um, and unfortunately it takes until you've ruled out all the physical possibilities then you can say well I think this patient needs to be seen by a certain type of psychiatrist you can yeah. look into it a bit further um, right. but there's not many who do that there's not many psychiatrists who specialise in like psychosomatic problems it's yeah do you think that's going to like that field is going to grow in the future as like more training is done around that it should do yeah. I mean there's definitely a demand for it uh, and probably psychiatrists in general are increasing Mm-hmm. Um, as people are becoming more aware that mental health is like the biggest, yeah. probably the biggest epidemic. Um, but within that, um, if I was a psychiatrist, you know, you still, there's some fields within psychiatry which are much harder than others, and that's probably yeah. one of the hardest. Yeah, I think, I think psychiatry is going to grow, because, I mean, I look at it as, as like optimization, right? Mm-hmm. And so you go to the gym and you eat right and all that stuff, like, if you can afford it, and it seems like more and more people are able to why not talk to somebody and talk through everything even if you have nothing wrong yeah, yeah. just to optimize to yeah. be like I want to live the best life possible and talk right. through things like yeah. nothing really bad has ever happened to me yeah. but it's still be nice to talk through like, yeah. the little things or just yeah. like just yeah like I, again it's like optimizing is the best way to yeah play. like you go to the dentist like a couple times a year normally like just to check in like but we don't do that for our mental state and no. I wonder how much like like how, how much does it get away with you? Like if you were just checking up on it a couple times a year, like you could see, okay. Yeah, would you not have maybe like a bigger problem? Yeah, maybe but maybe it just people. snowballs like, cause you know, you haven't checked in on your mental state in like mm. seven or eight years. Now all of a sudden it's like, I, wonder, I don't know why, but I feel depressed. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if that would stop. Cause there's, there's depression to the chemical imbalance, but there's also the kind that's like situational yeah. and like could be even just like, you know, a lot of sadness or a lot of, you have a lot of other issues going on. You feel really down. I wonder if it would alleviate that. Yeah. I don't know if it would alleviate like the chemical imbalance because it's like more physical. Yeah. It's a physical cause for it, right? Mm-hmm. But like, I wonder if you stay on top of it, you wouldn't have as much like, anxiety or these kinds of things that are more like. Mm-hmm. I-, I feel like if you manage them, they might be better. I don't know. Like, I wonder. Yeah. I wonder what that would be. I mean, one of the problems with you know therapy or whatever it is is like it requires a lot of work on you. So you have to go in. You have to do the work. You have to open up and like try to work on yourself. Whereas I go to the dentist like okay, this guy trained for eight years, like, look at my mouth, tell me if anything's wrong. You know, it's like, it stops at like, okay, the gums look good, whatever, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But like, if I'm going into therapy, it's like, I have to be vulnerable with this person. Mm-hmm. I have to be willing to work on myself. So if, if anything, like, it seems like the mental side of it, you know, the physical side, you give them a pill, you go and you operate, and which is all like super important. But then we're almost neglecting this whole other side where it's like, okay, go to therapy if like, you're really fucked up. But like, if you're just a normal person, like there's a stigma against going to it, you know. Yeah, which I think is changing. Like, I think it is. I totally agree. Better, yeah, better, yeah. Better. That's a better first line of defense to talk than is to to have invasive surgery or take yeah. pills. Like pills are, as you get older, you tend to have to take more pills anyway. So the less you can take, yeah. is better, right? For right. The most part. Yeah, one ounce of prevention is always better than ten ounces of cure. Yeah. But I mean, mm-hmm. I think the difficulty is that how much is going to be responsible. By medics, how much how much they're going to shoulder the financial yeah. responsibility financial responsibility of taking wellness as their mm-hmm. primary aim. Like uh, you know, if we suddenly had to say, well, we are responsible for everyone's you know stress, mm-hmm. which is kind of basically what you're saying. Yeah. Then I think that that 
I didn't know that business model, business model would work. Well, yeah. What if that's preventing a lot of, so in a socialized medicine like in Canada, what if that's going to prevent a lot of later stage treatment? Oh, which I, is, do, I, don't which is not, I don't mean it's not, I don't mean it's not necessary. It's just, I think that, but um, if, if you look at it that way though, if you look at it, like you're going to save money on the back end from like the treatment of like the bigger things yeah. by treating the smaller things by doing therapy and stuff maybe yeah maybe no no I, I, no I completely I agree with you I don't, I don't think it's non I think it's I think it's absolutely essential I think the question is is who takes the responsibility for that is that yeah. something that an individual does in their own autonomy or is it something that we can prescribe I mean having said this I think I mean this kind of comes basically to how, how we handle stress mm-hmm. you know if you handle stress poorly then the effect of it is going to be mental and physical yeah, yeah. Um, probably mental first yeah um, and I think stuff like you know so there's something called CBT so cognitive behavioral therapy which all it means is basically a system by which you're able to recognize thoughts mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. change your behavior appropriately to change those thoughts and in doing changing your thoughts you can change your emotions yeah it's very simple um, I, I think that should be taught to like every school kid. It's not. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. And equally, you know, mm-hmm. you know, schools are now teaching mindfulness and. Yeah, yeah. you know, my uh, my mentor in Belize got uh, like every school the school board in Belize to, to teach every like, eight year old yeah. um, mindfulness and have like meditative class in school. Damn. Yeah. Which that's awesome. Which is, I think, one of the best ways to do it. There's a lot of inner city violence and a lot of. You know, gang violence and stuff, and, and issues in Belize, especially in Belize City or uh, on the south side, like one of the most dangerous places in the world. Mm. I really think that's a great way to address it to start mm. from the inside out. And I'm curious to see what happens in the years to come if like yeah. these kids can grow up learning this and then they, yeah. they don't turn to that you know violent behaviors. Mm. It's like around them. It's like Absolutely. part of life. I wonder if that's like I think they can have a huge, yeah. huge yeah. impact. And I think those are probably the most secular things that we can do. I think it gets a little bit complicated when you say, well, the reason I'm able to handle stress is because of my political beliefs or my religious yeah. beliefs. Then it starts to get very gray. It There's gets a lot weird, of, yeah. A lot of people will say, well, the reason I'm, I'm happy is because I've, you know, I've got my community in my church. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then saying that, well... We need to prescribe that to everyone is a kind yeah. of yeah. Well, and there's other people that are good at dealing with stress because they've had horrible, hard lives. Yeah, yeah. they've dealt yeah. with it exactly. always, but that doesn't necessarily make exactly. you a better person in the sense of being happy. Like you might yeah. be really jaded or really bitter, mm. but you deal with stress. Yeah, that's yeah. not necessarily a good thing yeah. either. Exactly. It seems too like you know, dealing with a physical injury. Like okay, let's say you know something happens to my arm or like I get a cut, like it hurts, and I'm like biologically motivated to like fix it you know otherwise the pain stays so it's like okay there's this problem i'm gonna go to the doctor because i don't want to be in pain anymore that's how my body is designed Mm -hmm. it's designed to like make me go do that whereas if i'm depressed or i'm stressed out or i'm just like sad or angry or even i'm happy like i'm so there's almost like less of a biological incentive to like go figure that out because it's so much more abstract yeah you know like you don't think of like an animal being stressed out like we're not necessarily built to like be able to handle that, you know, mm. and it can change. Like, and it can change. Like it's your so arm subjective. Heal yeah. by itself. I mean, it does over a long time, but like you can, some emotions. So yeah. Sometimes it's just emotions. You can be like really down or really up, and it, it's like it, it'll change yeah. rather quickly. Yeah. And other times it's more serious and it lasts longer, and there's a chemical reason behind it. Like, right. I just I don't feel like tough. yeah. yeah I don't think we like, have the drive necessarily to address that. Like. We're just not design. We just haven't like evolved that way yet, you know. Because consciousness yeah. and like being able to understand suffering and like these different concepts, it's so new to us. And like, I don't know that we have the mechanisms that are like driving us to like, you know, actually like be motivated to mm. fix those. Which is maybe why not everyone's like going to therapy. Not everyone's why doing cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy. You know, yeah. Yeah, I think that raises like an interesting point because you're right. I mean, you know, if I suddenly got like a big spot on my you know face or my arm or something. Mm-hmm. And it was painful, or you know, some infection. Of course, you know, there's, I'd have a profound sense that I need to deal with it yeah. as soon as possible. Um, but if I felt a little bit low, mm-hmm. I wonder how many times I'd just use kind of an escape behavior just to forget about it. Yeah. Just, you know, chill out with someone, watch a film, drink a bit of wine. Who knows? I mean, yeah. We, we don't. Apparently, <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I think I think it's a really tricky question. Was I think. I think part of it is just the way we view our own identity and it's probably kind of going to segue off into a more of a concept on a discussion of philosophy but I think we are so body identified mm. that sometimes we don't even take our mind and emotions with the same respect that we do our bodies yeah you know? 
big seems like that, like our body's so supreme and you know yeah. aesthetics yeah. are everything but you, and you see that even in this month with people who take really good care of their body and they're really healthy how they eat and exercise but they didn't want to do the meditation sessions that we were doing yeah right it's like oh i hate meditation which is interesting for someone who really cares about their, their right. health and well-being. Yeah, exactly. Because it, it is part of your... But it's not a physical... Like, you can't see it. You can't exactly. measure it. Yeah, it's, it's harder to... Yeah, it's Other harder people to can't it. see yeah. it. So and also, yeah. and it's a different type of hard, I think. Like, yeah. There's a measurable progress when you yeah. lose weight or you yeah. get stronger or whatever. Exactly. But you, it's... The only, you, only you can see the progress in your yeah. mind. Only you can yeah. feel it. And it's still subjective. You, yeah. I don't even know how you can quantify how yeah. how much better you feel necessarily right yeah. whereas you can step on a scale you can Correct. measure your body fat exactly. yeah whatever. it's so hard to because yeah. like you were saying before like, okay you have one person who's like super religious they're really happy because of that religion and because of the community that they, get, they get out of that and then you have someone else who's like atheist but then they have some other thing that makes them happy like they're both getting to the same point but it's like they got there a different way like how do you know what did they do that made them happy? It's, there's not a, a good answer. Whereas mm. you see someone who's like super muscular, like super, they lost a bunch of weight. Like you can pretty much point that, you know, pinpoint what they did to get there, right? Yeah, yeah so you can follow the same. You can thing. follow this. You, know, you could replicate that. Whereas you're saying like, okay, go to this church service every Sunday and then you'll be happy. It's like maybe, maybe yeah, not. For a lot of people, no. <laughs> for a lot of people, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're right. I think um, I think like you know that value system is and upholding that value system is is difficult and yeah. there's no obvious external reward you know yeah it's kind of a classic phrase or you know i'm, I'm happy to dep- be depressed as long as i look good yeah. while i'm crying yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's okay you know, it's right. acceptable yeah uh, which is obviously ridiculous but um right. but yeah and i also think that we are able to rep we reward the external aspects massively yeah. in society and i would say globally you know if someone someone seems happy to us right okay well, well done. social media yeah great yeah. tech everyone you know, looks super stuff. happy and yeah right. exactly I, but if someone but yeah. if someone loses weight and you know they become like some adonis like the amount of feedback they're going to get for that is, right is huge, huge yeah. yeah if you go from you know 400 pounds and then you come down to like a trim 170 or 165 it's like oh my god that's amazing yeah, whereas yeah. if you're like oh I, I was depressed and like now i'm feeling really good it's like oh, okay oh, cool man yeah, this is, it, it doesn't trigger the same biological, like, right. re, you know, reward systems in our brain. Yeah, you, you don't know. see it. You're not, exactly. You and I almost feel like there's less of a drive in general to do that. You know, yeah. there's a drive to look good and to, like, attract other people. And, and But it's like, there's less of a drive or a motivation to, like, you know, become happier. Be well. Or be well. Be yeah, or be, be reduce your stress, right? Yeah. It's just like, yeah. It's just and I think, you're right. And I think we're, we're, we're quite bad at picking it up. Yeah. I think we're bad at picking, you know, it takes, I think we're, we're willing to do it for our, yeah. our friends, you mm-hmm. know, who are, we can recognize that they're low, but after how many years does it take a friendship to be able to say that, oh, you know, they, I think that I can, I can see that you're in yeah. a good place and try and help them out. Right. But for, you know, everyone, every other person who's kind of on that path pre-depression, yeah. uh, there's no one else to tell them that. There's right. no one else to recognize that. They have poor insight because they're feeling so low and don't want to communicate anyway. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's kind of, it starts to go into dire straits. So. And even just how we define success, like look at what's successful. Okay, have a lot of money or be a celebrity, be really famous. But most of the people that achieve that are like miserable, miserable depressed, like they have horrible, messy divorces. Like, mm. And it's like, we mm-hmm. see them as successful, whereas you have someone who's just like a normal guy who's like really happy. It's like, oh. Okay. You know, I thought about that a lot, and and it reminds me of something that Christopher Hitchens said mm. that he's not actually looking for happiness; he's looking for satisfaction. And I've thought about that because there's a lot of people that why would you want to work that hard and and be miserable like that? Yeah. Because you have a goal and you're trying to reach that, and that satisfaction yeah. to you is worth more than your happiness. Huh. But no, that's not to say it's more important. Yeah. But like I think happy, I think happiness is very important. I, I've been trying to be happy more than I've been trying to be successful, I think, mm. in general. But that satisfaction, I think that's a really interesting point. But why isn't being happy being successful? You know? Because there's two different sides of it, I think. Yeah. I think I think that is. I yeah, think yeah. you want to be. But I think yeah. sometimes you can't do both based on your your way of getting there. So if you want to yeah. do some like, you know, I think back to the show Entourage and 
Ari Gold is like, look at me, I'm successful and I'm miserable. And it's like, I get that because to get to where he was in that fictional show, yeah. he had to be the most you know, cunning and, and hardest working and like he had to do so much stuff that would not make you happy. Yeah. But he got to his goal and he got to have all the money, he got yeah. to have a big house and that's what he wanted. And that satisfaction, I think at times you'd feel really like when, when you would actually like be able to appreciate it, mm. that'd mean a lot to you. Like Chris yeah. Kitchen said, totally. but, but in the end, if I keep going with that example, you know, he just wanted to be his family and wanted like, that's what ends up happening. I think is yeah. the happiness. You want the happiness, but you, I think we crave satisfaction. That's like purpose. Kind of what we talked mm-hmm. about uh, last time. It's like your purpose is what you make it. And if you decide that's what it is, that's your goal, you go after it. Not everyone's purpose is happiness. Yeah, and you're not always going to be happy. And if that's, you know, if always being happy is what's going to fulfill you in life, then you're not going to live a fulfilled life. And also, what you happy. can do is you can work on being happy. So you can be doing anything. You can have anything happen to you and you can really work, like with mindfulness, on like being happy. Because mm-hmm. happiness is independent of anything else that's happening to you. Because you see people who have way less than other people and they're happy or bad yeah. things happen to them and they're happy or yeah. vice versa, they're not happy or, or they have everything and they're grateful and appreciative and they're happy. So it, it's, it's all about working on yourself, your happiness. Yeah. And then it's independent. I think you should strive to be successful to, for that satisfaction and then you have to separately work on being happy. Because you yeah. can be successful yeah. and hey, it's, be it's as satisfied as you want and you yeah. can be unhappy or, or vice versa or you can have both or you can have neither. You can yeah. be unhappy and unsuccessful and just be miserable and just be down and out and it's up it's up to you to change and and both ways you need to work on what can you do to become successful what what steps can you take to bring yourself closer to your purpose your goal but also what can you do to be happier yeah which is more like mindfulness and more like you know meditation or just how you view things i think is how you get happy and i don't i don't think they're two separate roads i think that Mm -hmm. definitely is one way of looking at it and it it's useful to realize areas of yourself that you need to work on to differentiate say okay well i need more skills in my career that's not necessarily going to improve my sense of well-being in any way but mm-hmm. it'll increase my income um and then on the on the flip side in terms of okay well how whole do i feel i am do i feel like a complete person do i still feel lacking internally um but i think i think there is a way of i mean this is this is like phrase in like eastern like Eastern philosophy which says rather than trying to achieve happiness you be happily achieving and I think there is a way that you can combine both roads yeah. arguably yeah. when you are in your happiness your happiest state you tend to do your best work mm-hmm. your mind is at mm-hmm. its most optimum yeah. so that's probably the first thing so there is a, a significant material advantage to being happy yeah. mm-hmm. and the second thing is I, like, I think that happiness if you're, if you're truly happy I don't think that means you're static mm-hmm. I don't think that means you're, you're stale and you're stagnating I think actually yeah. you become very active and you naturally start to express what makes you happy in your own way like what's kind of the flavor of your personality mm-hmm. so that might be kind of music or it might be the way that you do your work or it might be the fact that you know you love interacting with people and making a difference but you can apply that and use that means which makes you whole within your work and combine the two together so you can achieve both material success and you know word of fulfillment in your life mm-hmm. um, but you're right yeah. some people will have to take it as two separate streams to begin with to be able to diagnose where the problem is. Yeah, I think they're like parallel roads, right? And it's like, you can be on both, you can be yeah. on one, you can be on yeah. none. And yes, like, exactly. But the, I just think, uh, some people think they're they're totally intertwined. Like, if you're successful, you're happy, and if you're unsuccessful, you're not happy. Like, happiness is the goal, sure. but it's not yeah. the goal. True, I don't think they're intertwined in that way, but I do think if you are a happy person, by default, it's likely you'll be successful. Very yeah, likely. and yeah. at least, or at least you'll view it like, yeah, what, what you're doing is, yeah. is have more of a purpose or you'll feel you'll feel better right and yeah. if you're happy then you'll look at what you're doing and be like yeah, yeah i'm good with this you'll be more content yeah, yeah. it doesn't mean you'll be necessarily satisfied or necessarily yeah. have that purpose but like if you're happy you're, yeah. you tend to be more optimistic and you'll be like oh like i'm getting there or hey yeah. look at the good stuff i've done or uh, yeah i think it's, it's, it's quite tricky this idea of satisfaction um i do understand the, the hitchens argument and that's a very i think um it's a very western way of looking at achievement is that you feel that you have a lack and you want to fill that lack fill that hole and so you say well my salary is not high enough so I'm going to take a dent in my own personal esteem until I get that whatever it is raise car house whatever it is and that's a very insidious belief system to 
be able to move out of yeah. because that's stuck it feels like you it means you're kind of perpetually in this cycle of feeling incomplete mm. um however i think and i think this is extremely hard and i think it requires a lifetime of practice and i don't think the trend is looking at this way but if you if you do that if you're just following kind of the satisfaction based life mm. you, you're just you're a rat in a rat race yeah. but at the end of the race you're still a rat yeah. Um, the, your psychology hasn't changed there'll just be something else which you'll feel something incomplete over and there'll be another goal yeah. and I think yeah. there are different ways like for example if you take, take the happiness of a musician or you know someone who's like an artist normally the reason they're happy is because they're expressing their art yeah. not yeah. necessarily because they're trying to work you know for a Turner Prize or, yeah, yeah we're almost aiming at the wrong things it's like you're saying to yourself oh I want to be like a partner at this law firm or I want to you know get become the CEO of this company and it's like maybe that's what you want to do but maybe that's not and when you achieve that you will be successful and you will have achieved that goal and you, maybe you'll get that sense of satisfaction but like maybe you're just aiming at the wrong thing like yeah. that road is going this way the happiness road is probably going this way whereas maybe you just need to aim at something that's still just as you know successful yeah. in the way that we're defining it right. would still give you that same satisfaction but then also aligns with your happiness more correct yeah. uh, I mean don't get me wrong, I think, you know, we still need goals, we still yeah. need, you know, some sort of traction to be able to motivate ourselves, um, and I think that's all important. It depends on what the goal means to you. I think yeah. Um, yeah. if the goal means, if, if, you're, if you're putting happiness, if you're taking your own happiness and saying, okay, I'm less happy now, I'm going to put my happiness into the goal, mm. and say I'm going to get the happiness back once I've hit the goal. It, I mean, to me, that seems yeah. an insane way. You're like weirdly investing yeah. in happiness. But again, that's like, what if you're not trying for happiness? So like, like Michael Jordan, with his goal, his, his pursuit of his goals, and I don't know if you guys probably never read about it, but it was, he actually had like a mental problem when it came to wanting to achieve goals. Mm-hmm. He, he, he wanted these challenges and he'd set new ones every day in practice or whatever. Mm-hmm. He, that's why he won so much. And he was, he was so unbelievably competitive. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he quit doing one thing and go practice something else to beat somebody because they beat him once. Like, at, mm-hmm. like on a level that's not normal. And, you know, like, it wasn't, happiness wasn't the pursuit. It was, mm. it was this drive to win at all yeah. costs. And that's not necessarily good or bad, I don't think. I think it's like, mm. that's what really motivated him. That's what meant something to him. Yeah. And then he achieved those things, and then he was like, he felt good. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's not the best thing. Maybe at the end of your life, like, oh, I didn't. Well, maybe for him, because he's the best ever, that means yeah. a lot. But if, you, if you're someone who wasn't quite at his level, and you're like, well, I don't know if I used my time wisely or whatever. But maybe you did. Yeah. Maybe that satisfaction, that all that hard work you put in, but for those few moments where you get to enjoy what you accomplished, maybe that's worth it. Mm-hmm. Just like the people who just feel those moments of happiness where you're like, everything feels right after you've, you've been trying. You know, yeah. You've been down that mm-hmm. path. You finally are in the right space. Like Again, there's no reason why you can't do both, but if you go on that road where you're like obsessed with winning and you're not you're gonna be happy at points along the way but you're you're sacrificing your happiness like you said like you're yeah. putting your happiness away to accomplish this thing because the accomplishment means more to you than happiness yeah, yeah. I think some people it does I think what we don't know in this case is basically what what was his mentality during those training I mean yeah he may have really enjoyed the practice I think he did yeah. you're right I, I think actually he was a, uh, a certain type of happy yeah constantly beating people, right? Like he loved to win so much that every little victory he had was like happiness. And even the ones, even the victories for himself. Yeah, every every training session, every, you know, hit a legendary gambling problem, everything is every little win, every every competition. And I think that might go, that goes back to our like more primal side, right? I think, I think he as an example again, just had this really strong primal Mm. urge for competition. Like he was, he was the alpha amongst alphas, right? Like he, they put him on the dream team, which is like all the best players in the world, and he was the alpha of all the guys who were alphas their whole life. He was like yeah. the he was the top dog. Yeah. He, was the, he was the human beings yeah. of the group, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That that mentality, and I, I don't know, maybe that just goes more to this primal side of us that some mm-hmm. people have more, or they let out more, or whatever, and and maybe it goes back to his upbringing and all the the things like for every person how you grew up, your environment, all this stuff really mm. dictates mm. your mindset. Like me, I had such a good upbringing and such a, you know, caring, loving family. And I had, it's like hard for me to be like upset for very long 
Yeah, I find like pretty happy, and and I'm very competitive, but at the same time, mm. it doesn't derail my life. Like I, I think, I would naturally be a, an insanely competitive person, mm. but I'm just a regularly, you know, more than average competitive person because I had this this environment I grew up in mm. that didn't really foster this like, you know, kill or be killed type of thing. It was more mm. like everything was good. Yeah, yeah, and like my dad used to joke. He was like, "I raised you too well, and that's why you, you know, didn't." Well, he lost the hunger for that. Well, yeah, he was like, that's why when I played football, like, I didn't, I didn't like knock guys out and stuff, even though I had the like size and speed. I didn't have that urge. I didn't have any of that in me, mm-hmm. which he did because he had a much rougher upbringing. Like we're yeah, basically yeah. the same yeah. size, we're like the same yeah. build, and he knocked guys out all the time. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, yeah. I didn't. It was just like you can attribute it to our upbringing. I think yeah. more than anything, and that's yeah. the biggest differentiator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. It's very interesting. I wonder too, though, like we were talking before about, you know, you're kind of putting away your happiness until you achieve this goal. And I think that's good. In a lot of cases, like it's necessary. But I think one of the traps that people fall into is that they put their happiness away until they achieve the goal. And then when they achieve the goal, they bask in the happiness for like a day. And then it's like on to the next goal. Right. And they double up to the next one. And like, okay, maybe that's good, you know, 10 years. I mean, obviously you're doing that in a sense, investing in becoming a brain surgeon, right? But it's like, at a certain point, you have to just be happy, I think. You know, at a certain point, you have to have been, achieved the success. And right. I think what happens to a lot of people is exactly. they, they get there, they get to the end, and then they figure out, like, oh, that, the, the happiness isn't here, or I'm not able to enjoy it, or I'm so focused on just... Yeah, yeah. that's why I think it's a different road, and it's, it's close by, but it's different, yeah. because at any time along the way, you can... You can bring out your happiness. Yeah, and like, and you should be you able know, to. like all your all your studying you had to do in med school and stuff. Like, I'm sure you were happy along the way. Like, yeah. you didn't need to you didn't need to not be happy. It's hard work. You had to sacrifice a lot. Yeah, but you don't need to be miserable. Yeah, necessarily, right? Yeah. Some people do. Maybe it's so hard for them they just can't enjoy life at all. But then maybe yeah. that's not the right thing to do for them. Maybe yeah. like true. You, true. you need to yeah, you need to make a conscious effort to be happy in times where you need to sacrifice. Because that's a huge part of life. If you just do everything all the time, like even spending a month with Wi-Fi Tribe, if you do everything, if you drink every night and go out to every dinner and do everything with no self-control, you're not. You're gonna be less happy because you're gonna be worn out. You're gonna have no money left. It's just you need to find a balance. You need to know when to say no. Mm-hmm. You need to know when to you know enjoy with everybody and when to say like I need to sit this one out. Yeah. And you learn that. I learned that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you gotta. You can't do everything. If you say yes to everything, you're going to be, you know, again, you'll still be happy doing it, but you're actually going to be happier if you have a little bit of discipline, a little bit of, mm. you know, save something, say no to some things mm. and not do everything. Yeah. yeah. I think this, you know, this way of putting, you know, delaying happiness, it's a model. I think it's, it's a model by which we motivate ourselves to live. And I think it, it obviously works. You know, because I think, as I said, like pretty much all of Western culture is built that way. We think yeah. that we try to get for the next thing because it will, we think it will make us happier, but we take a hit in the process. Yeah. Um, I, as I said, it's a model, and I think at a certain point, you're right. Then you're right. Well, is this actually giving me? I'm actually just gaining back what I had to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you haven't. Maybe your happiness level hasn't increased at all. Yeah, it's I've just, just actually yeah. just taken a bit out and put it. Yeah, yeah. You know, three months down the line or three years down the line. Yeah. Um, and then after a certain stage, you're like, okay, well, forget the goal. I'm just using the goal as a transactional target just to yeah. give me some sense of direction. But actually, from now on, I'm just going to enjoy the game yeah. rather than the victory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think you can actually see that, that change. I think, I think sports, as you were saying, is probably quite a good way of seeing that in sports people. And I think initially you can see them kind of early in their careers where, you know, they wanted to be the best and, you know, take like footballers for example if you take like say like Messi or Ronaldo they've achieved everything they've yeah. literally there's, there's no record they've not broken mm-hmm. but they're still playing football yeah. and it's, it's I don't think it's because of the paycheck I don't no. think they need yeah. any more money exactly so I think it's just for the beauty of the game yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I think that transition going from I want this trophy I want this reward I want this money etc to playing for the game itself yeah. I think everyone has to do that transition I think probably the earlier the better uh, the earlier you start to approach that the better I think yeah yeah. Do you know I wonder what you, what you just said though about how Western society is based on a lot of this just like goal reaching and its happiness. But I wonder if that's like because Western society has had a lot of advances. Mm. I wonder if that is a kind of 
altruistic way of being where you're, you're kind of sacrificing your own happiness and well-being and stuff for the group, even if you're acting selfishly, even if you're like, mm-hmm. I just want to become partner, blah, blah, blah. But you're, you're pushing the economy and society forward in your yeah. own little space. And that's what's like allowed all, this, all these improvements that we've had as far as like, all the measurable ones, yeah. you know, as far as people being richer and uh, more access and more discoveries in, in medicine and science yeah. and stuff. Like I, maybe, I think it's indirect, I don't think you're thinking of that when you do it, but I think that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of what is happening is like this really work hard, put your head down and try to achieve thing culture leads to a lot of advances. Yeah, it almost seems like necessary to get to where, like you need someone working in the factory like all day, not thinking about their own yeah. happiness. You, you know? can't have a whole population right, of exactly. artists and musicians. Yeah, who are purely, yeah. you know, and it's kind of fucked up. Like some people are gonna kind of have to, you know, it, like, yeah, it's almost necessary. But I don't, I think there's very few people working in a factory for the, for the, motivation to help the nation unless there's like a war right well, I think they're I think, not doing it yeah. I think trying to be part of your law firm to help your country either. I think, I think you just, what probably pushes yeah. them is the fact that they have to support a family and yeah. they need some money and they're willing to yeah. Yeah. take a big hit yeah. because ultimately they're the welfare and yeah I, I think I think innumerable numbers of families worldwide you know live in those circumstances yeah. Yeah. they didn't have the choices that we did but they needed to earn money yeah and then they want to, what they want to do when they earn that money is send their kids to a good school. Right. And they want their kids to succeed. Exactly. And their kids do well and they, this next generation is, is a lot more well has, off than has they the were. Freedom and, yeah. and that's what's been happening. And it's yeah. just leading to a lot of, I mean, there's still so many issues in the world, but yeah. we're moving forward. Yeah. And I think that's a gift. Like if you're, I think sometimes people in those situations, like, you know, people like us who live in Western society, it's like. So there's almost like this guilt that's associated with this Western guilt, like, well, you've been given everything, and like, you know, there's been so many sacrifices to get you to where you are, and it's almost like we're supposed to feel bad about that, but I think you should almost feel, enti- you should almost feel like responsible with that, like, okay, yeah, I have been given this, like, and so I'm going to take all these advantages that I've been given and go out and do something cool, and yeah, also find my own happiness, like, imagine you're the person that worked in the factory and so that your kid could go to school, and then, you know, they had a kid, and that's you, and now, like, they didn't do that so you could be miserable, you know? They didn't mm-hmm. do that so you could feel guilty. They did that so you could fucking feel happy and succeed. And, like, there's, you kind of have a responsibility to do that, you know? Yeah. I, feel I, like I, too. I was going to say, I don't, think, I don't think everyone in our generation thinks like that, though. I think they should do. I think that, I, yeah, I don't think they should either. But I think if they did, then yeah, there would be this profound yeah. sense of responsibility. Like, I needed, to, you know, yeah, I've been given this great gift. Exactly. Yeah, responsibility yeah. is great. And it's like, I don't feel guilty, I feel grateful. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I, I think like, that's the correct like sense of responsibility yeah. to do. Because we've talked about this before. It's like I never asked to be born. Yeah, you didn't. I was, I, I was here, and I was here to these circumstances. I couldn't help who I was born to, where I was born, yeah. anything. Not color of my skin, yeah. my ethnicity, my background, what country I was born in, anything. I have no choice. And I was in a fortunate position. And I'm not... Mm. Why, why should I feel guilty? I, I have no choice in this matter. Right. I feel grateful. Yeah. I feel responsible to do something with mm-hmm. it. And I feel responsible to, you know... Not even necessarily, it's not my job to fix the world or anything. I'd be like, oh, I have to go help all these like less developed nations and stuff. What I've been doing though for my adult life is I've been living in developing countries and I've been getting to know people on the same level as me mm. and not being superior and not, yeah. not being like, oh, I'm here to save you. I'm like, no, I'm here to hang out with you. And like, yeah, I have an advantage. I'm, I can go back to Canada. I can earn more money by doing less because of mm. where I'm from, whatever. But while I'm here with you, while we're in this village, or while we're hanging out on the river, like while we're doing this stuff, we're just the same. Mm-hmm. And not like, and not bullshit, not like, oh, I'm just feeling good about myself. Like, I, for real, being like, you know, I've been on three day river patrols with, with guys from Guyana, like indigenous dudes from Guyana that we, like, we're just sitting there eating fish that we caught and there's no electricity, we're sleeping in hammocks. And there's no, there's no difference between us, yeah. right? And yeah, I go back. And there's a big difference, but yeah. but I just feel like that that idea of this guilt it, it creates a barrier mm-hmm. as opposed it doesn't help. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't help, help anybody. Not even it a makes little you bit. Feel, yeah. It makes you feel miserable. It doesn't help anyone else. Like, what's the point? I just think we should try to break down that barrier and just yeah, be grateful and be mindful. Yeah, and be like I'm responsible. 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 Yeah, responsible well. is the best thing. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because actually um, this idea of responsibility and like coming kind of full circle back to we're talking about happiness there's a, a psychiatrist by the name of Nathaniel Brandon or something 
Brundle or Brundle. Okay. He uh, he was the first psychiatrist to develop the concept of self-esteem, mm-hmm. which you think would be something which is so simple and yeah. so utterly pervasive and so important because that's what we're all trying to achieve somehow that we have a you know our happiness is based on our self-esteem, our success mm-hmm. is based on our self-esteem. But what he pointed out really strongly was actually our level of accountability that we have in our life, our level of uh, gratitude that we have for things which have come before us, and the level of responsibility that we take as human beings is directly proportional to the amount of self-esteem we have. Mm. Some people think, okay, well, if I'm more responsible, that means more work. But actually, it has a direct impact on how happy, happy we can be. Yeah. Um, if you suddenly say, you say, I'm going to take responsibility for my body, of course, you're going to treat it with a lot more respect. If yeah. you suddenly say, well, I'm going to take responsibility as a human being, to be good to other human beings, then your kind of circle of influence just gets wider and wider, and yeah. so your esteem also exponentially increases mm-hmm. in the process. So he kind of labelled it as one of the most fundamental pillars of what derives as happiness, which at the outset, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, responsibility, accountability, gratitude—they're yeah. all coming from yeah, the same place. Yeah, right. Yeah, you don't. You almost think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I'm more responsibility. Like, I'm gonna be less happy. Like, I'm gonna be more bogged down with stuff whereas it's like kind of the opposite like yeah. the more you take on like the more you realize who you are the more yeah, exactly. it pumped yeah, up your purpose yeah, yeah the more purpose you have yeah. you see that a lot with um, the recovering addicts when they take responsibility mm-hmm. and start being like you know then they own it and they say this is like I have to I have to put the work I have mm-hmm. to like, yeah. you know exactly. start doing whatever it is hold down a job I have to be responsible to make sure I don't relapse all these things and it's like there's more meaning, more yeah. purpose, yeah. and then they tend exactly. to be way more successful. Yeah. You, you crawl yeah. out of that exactly. dark place. And I've yeah. seen it. I've yeah. seen friends yeah. go through that, where they just they just accept more responsibility, more accountability, yeah. and they are so much better off now. Yeah, I think so. And, I, I think I think that's what you're doing. Even when you say that, you know, I'm grateful for where I'm born. I'm grateful for the upbringing you have. It's like you're acknowledging. You're well. Firstly, you're acknowledging obviously you know what your roots are, but mm-hmm. in some ways you are also making yourself accountable to that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very difficult to be ungrateful for something. Um, and, or, sorry, it's very difficult to be grateful for something and be irresponsible at the same time. Yeah. So the fact that you can acknowledge that, you know, what hardships your parents went through or the fact that they had to work so you could have choices, mm. it suddenly makes you much, much more centered. Yeah. And it creates a, a much more profound focus in your own life yeah. of that, okay, well, I really have the opportunity to create happiness for myself and those around me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely, like, wholeheartedly think that's, you know, one of the profound solutions that people need, not only to overcome, like, you know, it's kind of a idea of, like, Western guilt or guilt, the fact that we're brought up in a certain way and we have better advantages, but just in general, I think, yeah. is, is definitely something we need. And it's available to everyone. You know, it's not yeah. difficult either. Just look at what you have. And everybody has something they can be grateful for. I mean, at least... I'd like to think just even consciousness you know like evolution had to go through you know however many years to right. get us here like that alone just the fact that you have this DNA you know yeah. like is something to be grateful yeah. for so. exactly. yeah exactly and it, it's funny I think it's also a very strong talking about models of why people do things and why people chase after happiness I think it's a very strong way of um, motivating people to work Mm-hmm. Um, if you you know if you feel a profound sense of gratitude towards your parents um, or your family for what they've done for you, you automatically you you tend to want to act. Yeah. But not in a way that you're trying to like complete a debt. It's like you're trying to honor it. Right. And it's like a, and you want you want to pay it forward. And it's and, very pure. Yeah. It seems like it's coming from a very pure place. It's not greedy. It's not. It's coming from gratitude and yeah. Yeah. Just being thankful for what you have, and that's kind of what's powering it. Which ultimately, I think leads to better things you know yeah. if you're acting out of greed it's maybe you'll get to the same place but you're not getting there and it's just like we talked about before you know you want to be successful you want to get to this successful place we also want to be happy along the way and i think the motivations for getting you there is a, a good way of kind of combining those two mm-hmm. things if you're getting there because you feel responsible and you feel gratitude and you feel like you want to have the next generation be even better i think you can't help but I don't know, at least feel a little bit better about that journey. Whereas if mm. you're getting there through the motivations of greed or lust or whatever, you know, whatever vice it is that's drawing you there, I think you can't help but be worse off, you know, mm. along the way. And then once you get there as well. I think so. I think it's definitely um, part of that other road. Yeah. My brain's hurting. Yeah. <laughs>
Any, any suggestion, <laughs> Mr. Brain Surgeon? I don't think we've talked about that much brain surgery actually. I think we moved quite yeah, far we went, away from we went from brain surgery. Quite yeah, far yeah. away from that topic. Well, that's yeah. a natural progression. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me we got there. Tell me the mind. It's yeah. all. Yeah, it's all connected. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I think, I think we went. I don't know how how long that was, but uh, I think it's. Uh, I think it's long enough. <laughs> yeah, it was like hour fifteen. Oh jeez. All right. Well. Oh, just an hour. Oh, that was like an hour. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Anand, thanks for, uh, I mean, we've talked like this a lot, but it's nice to get it. Yeah, it's cool to record it, and also to just like sit down and, you know, it's like, we all feel like we're... And be more focused, because sometimes you do this, and then sometimes you're drinking, or there's other people, and you you don't get to, you don't get to do it the same way, so this was, I love doing this. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. It's It's awesome being around some cool, interesting people. Likewise. uh, Why (laughs) why Wi-Fi Tribe is pretty cool, right? Yeah. Dude, that's what I was saying, like, last night, like, how often, like, Amanda has, like, a PhD from Harvard, like, you're a brain surgeon, like, when I was, like, gonna hang out with, you know, you, like, lived in the jungles of Guyana, like, where else am I gonna hang out with, drink all the, drink with all these cool people, like, it's so cool, I don't know, it's such a fucking awesome (laughs) experience, anyway, yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Alright, okay, that's it, you wanna send us off? Me? Yeah. Yeah, thanks for listening. (laughs) I don't know what you want me to say. (laughs) Alright. Team human. Team human. See you.